So 1 Corinthians chapter 11 at verse 17. This is God's holy word. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. That's as far as we'll read this morning in this part of God's holy word. Well, last week, if you weren't with us last week, as we have been considering the gospel of Luke in the New Testament, we looked in particular at the the calling of John the Baptist or the mission of John the Baptist, what he was called by God to do, and that was to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Jesus was coming uh, into the world. God the Son taking our human nature to himself to be our Savior, and God sent a messenger to prepare the way for the King, for the Lord, our Savior, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And we thought a little bit about being prepared and being ready to meet the Lord. That same word, to make ready, is found in Matthew 26. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations? 
for you to eat the Passover. It's the same word, to be ready, to be prepared, to make preparations. And on that occasion, for the disciples, there was a lot to do to get ready that Old Testament covenant meal, the Passover. Lots to do in finding a place, which would be the upper room. All the provisions of food and drink that needed to be gathered together. Meals always need to be prepared, don't they? Uh, Boys and girls, maybe you've helped with that as your parents have been preparing a meal and uh, you've helped maybe in the kitchen getting food ready or uh, maybe you've helped set the table. Lots of things that need to be done in preparation for a meal, especially if guests have been invited to the meal. Set the table, clean the house, get everything ready, guests are coming. You want to be prepared and ready. Well, this afternoon, Lord willing, we're going to have the sacrament of the Lord's table, communion. And there are going to be people in this congregation that will have made ready the things so that we could have communion. Someone needs to do that. It just doesn't automatically appear. And we're thankful for that preparation that is done for us so that we can have the sacrament together. But as we think about preparation for meals, for instance, or preparation for the Lord's table, that sacrament in the church, beyond any physical preparation, the most important preparation is spiritual. It's of the heart. At that last Passover meal in the first Lord's Supper, we read later on in Matthew 26, the disciples had gone and made it ready. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. Now notice that Jesus at that point didn't identify who would betray him. He could have simply said it outright, but he didn't. He left it very general, didn't he? Not specific at this point. Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. And because it was left in that open way, we read in the next verse of the disciples, they were very sad and began to say to him one after another, Lord, is it I? Or in some translations, surely not I, Lord. Now, the Greek uses a question word here, which is a word which expects a negative answer. That's why the New International translates it, surely not I, Lord. What was going on there? It may perhaps still be a sign of self-confidence and self-sufficiency in the disciples. One of you will train, well, surely not I. That may be. But I think in the judgment of charity, when we read that they were very sad, this may also be a genuine grief and distrust of self, a question that is really questioning themselves. Is it I, Lord? Is it I? So before that Passover meal, Jesus provides an opportunity for what? For self-examination. Is it I? The Puritan 
Preacher Matthew Henry said, it is noteworthy that our Lord Jesus, just before he instituted the Lord's Supper, put upon his disciples this trial and suspicion of themselves to teach us to examine and judge ourselves and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And what we see at that first Lord's table in that question of Jesus is what we see explicitly in 1 Corinthians 11 that we've just read this morning. The best preparation for the Lord's Supper is an examination. The first preparation is an examination. I often talk to students and I'll say, how are things going? And and sometimes they'll just say two words and I, I know probably what's going on. They say, exam time. It's exam time. Maybe you, you work in the trades and you've got to, to get your ticket, you've got your exam, your final exam, and that's a, that's a serious and important thing. Well, here we see an examination. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. and we'll focus on that verse again. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. The first thing that we should see is this is something that is commanded. This is a commanded examination. The word examine here is a command. If you remember your English grammar, it's an imperative. It's hard to get across because this is a, a third-person imperative. Usually our imperatives are second-person. You do this, you all do that. But this is a third-person. And so often it's translated, let a man, let a man. Or as the New International Version that we read, I think rightly captures it, a man ought to examine himself. That, that gets the sense here that this is a command. The Bible tells us that the Christian life is a life that should be filled with examining or testing. Test all things, 1 Thessalonians 5.21. We test all things in life. We examine all kinds of things, things we buy, things we we eat. We look very carefully at it. But are we more serious about what we eat or what we buy than about our own hearts and our own souls? And so God is helping us here by commanding us, let a man examine himself. We are not ever to think that this is optional or even just preferable. It is a required Christian duty. Let a man examine himself. And it is commanded because it's good. It will be for our good. Matt, you need to go to the doctor for that procedure. I don't want to go to the doctor. Matt, it's for your good. All right, I'll go to the doctor. We need to remember this. God commands this for our good. But it's also commanded, I think, because it is a difficult thing. It's a difficult duty. It's not one we're prone to, naturally. When we read that we are to examine ourselves, that means first that we need to do it. We are the examiners. Let a man examine himself. Let a woman examine herself. We need to do that, not someone else. Have you ever uh, been purchasing a house in that process? 
and you want to make sure you don't make a big financial mistake, and so you get a house inspector. Why do you get a house inspector? Because you want to get someone who really knows their job. You want to get someone who can pick things out that you'd miss. You want to have someone that isn't trying to sell the home, so they're going to cover things over. You want someone who'll be honest, even if it's not good news. And so when you buy a house, you get a house inspector to come. But as we prepare for the Lord's table, we are commanded to do something ourselves. We are to do it. And it's hard to be a good judge of ourselves. Jesus spoke about logs in our own eyes. That makes it hard to see if you have a log. Jesus is speaking with exaggerated language there, but that makes it hard to see if you have a log in your own eye. Sin is blindness in the Bible. And it is a blindness that is blind often to its own blindness. It's blind to its own blindness. One writer said, spiritually blind people think they see well. The spiritually blind person walks around with the delusion that no one has a more accurate view of himself than he does. The pastor who has just gotten angry during, during an elders meeting will tell himself he was just speaking like one of God's prophets. The husband and wife gossiping about someone in their small group tell themselves it was just a detailed prayer request. The tight-fisted businessman who struggles with giving will tell himself that he is just being a good steward of the resources God has entrusted to him. We all have the perverse ability to make ourselves feel good about what is not good. This is a difficult duty that we're being commanded to do here. J.W. Alexander said, you will be naturally reluctant to come to an unfavorable conclusion. Self-love combined with self-ignorance, will expose you to the danger of self-deception. So Paul says in Romans 12, don't think more highly of yourselves than you ought. Because that's what we usually do. This is a difficult duty. It's commanded because it's difficult. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17.9. And as we come to grips with that question, the question is answered in verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. And so we are commanded to examine ourselves. This is a difficult command to obey, but graciously God gives us a co-examiner to come alongside us, the Holy Spirit. Search me, O God, and know my heart. We read that in Psalm 139. Try me, test me, and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Paul can say in 1 Thessalonians 2.4, we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. And so as we have this command to to examine ourselves, 
We always need to do that prayerfully. We need to do that looking to God to help us because we're often not the best judge of ourselves. Now, God can help us indirectly in other ways. We are to examine ourselves. But does this mean that no other help in this examination is legitimate? No, Jesus says, by their fruit, you'll know them. There are things that other people see about us that reveal things. Christian parents are often the best fruit inspectors in their children's lives because they know you, boys and girls. I don't know you the way that your parents know you. And sometimes you have a look or you say something, and I might think it just may be this, but your parents know, no, that's that. Because I've seen that look before, and that's where it's coming from. It's good to listen to our parents who love us and want the best for us. Often, good Christian friends can help us. Like I said, wounds from a friend can be trusted, and they see things. And when they love us, when there's enough of a relationship of loving care that we have each other, you know, you, you just don't go up to an, a stranger and poke your finger in his chest and say, this is what's wrong with you, buddy. That's not going to get you very far. But we love each other. We know each other, and I hope that's growing. And as we do, by God's grace, we'll, ab- we'll be able to talk to each other in a deeper way, and be able at the right time, in the right place, from the right heart, to say, have you thought about this in your life? And again, we can, we can reject that and kick against that, because we don't like that kind of self-examination, but it's for our good. And God has ordained, Jesus has appointed ordained overseers in the church. The Lord's Supper relates to the keys of the kingdom given to the church, and that's connected to uh, admitting people to the Lord's table, to the church, as the elders examine them. And if it needs be, we hope it's not, but discipline in people's lives so that the Lord will work in their hearts to bring them back. Elders are called to keep watch over the flock. Out of care and concern for people, verse 29 says, lest you eat and drink judgment on yourself. And so God has appointed elders for that purpose, and we should respect that under God. But we come back full circle Again, as one someone once said, overseers in the church can only judge whether your profession of faith should be believed. But there is a secret matter between God and your own soul, which must now engage your most careful attention. We must examine ourselves with the help of the Holy Spirit. This commanded exam, we go on secondly, must be a self-exam, and that might just seem, yeah, of course it is, but we need to separate those things out. Let a man examine himself. So who's to do the examination? Yourself, the, the person. But what is to be examined? Yourself, the person. They are two separate things. And this is what we focus on secondly. We've already seen that we ourselves are commanded to be the examiners, 
But secondly, it is ourselves that are to be examined. A man ought to examine himself. And I, I think there, there is a, a gentle rebuke even in those words so often. We often take much more time examining other people's lives and other people's decisions and other people's behaviors and other people's families and other people's children more than we do examining ourselves. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. In 2 Corinthians, the congregation there had been tempted by false apostles to discredit and despise Paul's ministry. Chapters 10 and 12 of 2 Corinthians, Paul answers in defense of his ministry. But then in verse 13, he reminds the church in Corinth, examine yourselves. Don't spend your whole time examining me and my ministry. Examine yourselves. It is most commonly seen, said one commentator, that those who are the most busy to desire or inquire after a proof of Christ in others are the tardiest in making an inquiry of Christ being in themselves. Let a man examine himself. And it is especially in preparation to respond to the invitation of Christ to his covenantal meal, the Lord's Supper, that we are to examine ourselves. Our catechism reminds us what is required of the worthy receiving of the Lord's Supper. It is required of them that would worthily partake of the Lord's Supper that they examine themselves of their knowledge to discern the Lord's body, of their faith to feed upon him, of their repentance love and new obedience, lest coming unworthily they eat and drink judgment to themselves. To take time to pray that God would help you examine yourself, that I would do that as well. Let me just ask some questions that I've gleaned from various places this week. As we just take time now, as you take time just to examine yourself, just listen to these questions. Do I see myself by nature a lost and helpless sinner? Am I looking away from myself and see that I must be completely trusting in Christ alone for salvation? Am I relying on the help of the Holy Spirit? On what is my hope of acceptance with God built? On me? On my improving of my life on my sorrow for sin, on my prayers, on my good works, or in Christ alone as my all in all? Is Christ precious to me? Do I hate sin and desire to be delivered from it? Do I pray to be delivered from sin without any exception of a particular sin or lust? Do I strive against sin? Do I try to avoid temptation? Have I counted the cross the following Christ? Am I willing to take up the cross and follow Christ wherever he would lead me? Do I want to be transformed by the word of God rather than conformed to the world? Do I love holiness? 
Do I desire to be more and more conformed to God and his law and more and more to be like Christ, my Redeemer? Do I pray? Do I read the Bible? Do I love God's word? Is God's glory my highest aim in life? Do I have a love for others that I didn't have before? Do I have a great desire that people would be saved and brought to Christ? Do I feel a particular love to God's people? As much as it depends on me, am I living in peace with others? If not, have I tried to be reconciled to them? When someone repents, do I from the heart forgive those who have wronged me? Do I desire to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ my Savior? Do I see the fruit of the Spirit in my life? Do I want to see it more? Do I love the Lord Jesus Christ and especially love him for dying for my sins? Do I desire to remember him and his dying love at his table? Do I desire deeper communion with Christ? Do I desire deeper communion with the people of Christ? And as I was thinking about questions to ask myself, as I ask them to you now, I was thinking about 1 Peter in this regard, because Peter mentions testing or examination in connection with suffering grief in all kinds of trials. You remember that? First Peter 1. Grief, all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved, tested, genuine, and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. I think that's very helpful in self-examination when we think of struggles in our life and what happens in us. Have struggles and suffering and trials brought you nearer to Christ or farther away? When hard things come to you in God's providence, do you have hard thoughts toward God, toward Christ? Or even in suffering, do you love him? The Lord's table is a testimony of our love to Christ. But even more, it is the sign and seal of Christ's love to us. For every look, one look we take to ourselves, we should take ten looks to Christ, the old Puritan said. We are commanded to examine ourselves. We are to have a prayerful spirit helped look at ourselves. But in the gospel, this examination is always, by God's grace, ultimately in his people, an encouraging examination. Let A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. 
The examination is commanded. We looked at that. But the eat and drink, those verbs here are commands as well in the Greek. Examine yourself and eat and drink. Both are commanded. What an encouragement that is. What an encouragement. There is a positive, blessed goal of this self-examination. You know, self-examination can be avoided. On the one hand, we don't want to do it. But on the other hand, I know sometimes it can be a bottomless pit of morbid introspection, of endless discouragement. Like we saw with Luther this past week, who spent six hours confessing and then had to confess that he didn't confess everything that he needed to confess. Endless discouragement. But beloved, Christian faith, God-given faith, spirit-produced faith, is not a faith of morbid introspection, but of Christ-focused extrospection. You know, sometimes we speak about introverts and extroverts. You know those pronouns. Well, Christian faith is not introspection, ultimately. It is extrospection. It is looking away from yourself. Augustine said that man in sin is always curved in upon himself. Homo incurvatus in se. Man always curved in on himself. So everything is just about yourself. Whether that results in pride or whether that results in paralysis because you just, you want the approval of people around you and you don't get it and then you do all the, and it's just a, a, a swamp of sinful self-regard. But what is faith? Faith looks away from yourself. It looks away from everybody else and looks to one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, if you are a baptized believer, after prayerful examination, Christ invites you to come. In fact, he commands you to come, not just to the table, but to him. And that's the encouragement. This is a faithful saying. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And as Paul said, of whom I am the worst. If the worst could come, you can come. If the worst was shown mercy, I can be shown mercy. Don't let self-examination keep you from Christ. By God's grace, let it drive you to Christ. Get out of yourself and get into Christ. Look to him. Look to him. Come to me, he said. All you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Sin is always self-oriented either in proud selfishness or in self-loathing and self-helplessness and self-hopelessness. 
The devil doesn't care what kind of self you want to be in slavery to. No good comes from exclusively focusing on yourself either way. What are you going to find as you examine yourself in light of God's word by his spirit? What will all of us find? Sin. Sin. Don't come to a congregation. Don't come to this this congregation or don't come to a worship service and look around at people in nice clothes sitting prim and proper and saying, I guess their lives are all together. I'm the only one. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all stumble in many ways. There's no one righteous, no, not one. There was once a a woman in church. One historian writes that was weeping in the service as they were about to have the Lord's Supper. And she would not come because of her sins. The presiding minister that day was John Duncan. And he set the plate with the bread under her nose and said, take it. It's for sinners. Do we feel, one writer said, our sins, but also treasure the grace that is greater than all our sins in the Savior? That is the goal of self-examination. The Word of God tells us to examine ourselves and then come to the table. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He gives food to the hungry. Jesus commands, do this in remembrance. Not of your sins, he says, but of me. Self-examination by God's grace for the Christian is always to be swallowed up in Christ's exaltation.